You want it straight? That's what you're here for? The electorate. Once you've gone, out of the country. Well, are they telling me? Are they asking me? I'm asking you. But in five days, I'm making you. So when I take over Sheriff Lincoln County. Oh, Pat. Sheriff Pat Gary. Sold out to the Santa Fe Ring. How does it feel? It, uh... Feels like times have changed. Times, maybe. Not me. Hey, we can stick around. We've got a few days left, ain't we? No, I gotta get back. Adios, Pat. Adios, Bill. Don't press your luck. I'm worried about my luck. Why don't you kill him? Why? He's my friend. The following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. <laughs> they must be destroyed on sight! Welcome back to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 164. I'm your host, Lee. Crazier than a mule-humping goat, Russell. Joined by my co-host, Daniel. Well, I hope they spell my name right in the paper, Harper. How you doing, sir? Uh, I just hope they spell my name right. Yeah. <laughs> Once everything comes out, all the, all the stories are released. All, all the infamy is uh, detailed in news reports. Joined by my other co-host, Paul. Always got to have the minority opinion on everything, Ramali. How you doing, mm-hmm. sir? That's me. Here I am to say the spout the news of the people. Here it is. I hope they uh, just keep the right change. You know what I mean? There you go. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be doing Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, directed by Sam Peckinpah from 1973. This time out. But uh, before we do that, we do have some house cleaning to do. So... I'm going to get in some comments here. First off, from 
Cameron Sullivan on the Facebook group. This would be a cool film for you guys to cover, by the way. One of the shouting lines by villain Antonio Sabato sounds like the lines in your intro. And the movie is Turig, the Desert Warrior from 1984. I'm probably totally butchering that name, but it's an Inzio G. Castellari film. Uh, one of his... Oh. Yeah, one of those late period ones after, you know, uh, like Bronx Warriors and stuff like that. Uh, sort of out of his exploitation phase, I guess. Yeah, that sounds interesting, Cameron. I was looking at it, and it looks like it's maybe something to uh, to put on the list. We were talking about throwing on some Italian stuff in the future, so, you know. Yeah. Jeff Williams gives his recommendations of the week this time out. He says, any of the films from the uh, Ranoan cycle, directed by Bud Bodicher and starring Randolph Scott. And he lists a bunch of westerns here, I guess. Uh, Ride Lonesome, Comanche Station, The Tall T, Seven Men From Now, Buchanan Rides Alone, Decision at Sundown, and Westbound. He says, all seven of the low-budget westerns that make up this list are well-written, acted, and directed with superior casts. But Ride Lonesome and Comanche Station achieve true thematic greatness, in my own opinion. Mm-hmm. Cool. I would say, too, to add to that list is God Gave Cain to Abel would be a good one to do on your span. Oh, is that the... Um, with uh, Klaus Kinski. Klaus Kinski, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, if you have nothing to do with those, I would throw that in there too. Yeah. Uh, so we we do we already have like a fucking good list for the no, next time. Sure. We... You have like a massive list of against... No, I was about to say we. I was about to say we already have a good list for the sec- next time we uh, go back to westerns. I mean, you probably have a three or four lists by now. The, the thing yeah. is, it turns out that people keep making more movies, and <laughs> you know. There are just always more movies for us to do. Well, the thing is, and that's me buying more westerns because I love, I'm loving watching what we're watching, so I buy more. So that's good. Keep it coming. Keep it coming because they're Sweet. all good. And coming uh, from our uh, <laughs> theme of last week, where this show just doesn't feel complete anymore unless we have some YouTube comments, we got one good one and one bad one this time. Oh! So, uh, w- which do we want first, the good or the bad? No, no, you have to start with the good and you end with the bad. Okay. That's fair. Okay, so uh, Nage37, who has commented several times in the past on our YouTube version of the podcast, says, on our episode on The Mercenary, Ennio Morricone is one of my favorite composers. Only saw this movie recently and I loved it. Excellent podcast as usual, gentlemen. So there you go. Thank you oh, very much. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it. Mm. And now for uh, the hate comment of the week from Marvin G. Harden. And this was on our episode on uh, Cleopatra Jones and TNT Jackson. Oh, this is going to be great. Mm. Can't wait. For, he, he starts off by saying, A-hole, Cleopatra Jones was a money-making movie, and Tamara Dobson was great actress who won an award. So learn something about movie before you lie. Fuck out of here. Well, one, I think you probably basically agree with that comment and the other one his name is marvin so go fuck <laughs> uh well here's my response um you might want to know what you're talking about before you spout off if you had actually <laughs> listened to the episode and i actually listened back to confirm this so i wasn't talking on my ass we say cleopatra jones made money and that dobson was good the movie Thank where you. we mentioned bad acting was tnt jackson with janine bell you know the second movie we talked about on the podcast as for bad box office, we didn't mention bad box office for either film. Like I said, we mentioned Cleo made money and that TNT seems like it did as well compared to what its budget must have been. So, yeah, fuck you, Marvin. So, again, so again my, my comment is they made money and fuck your name is Marvin. Same thing. You, yeah. you win. 
Good job. Imagine, imagine being at a point in your life where you're a YouTube commenter, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, well, in 2019. I, I just, I, I'm glad I've never got to that point where I have to spout hate on the YouTube and make myself feel better, but in a way that's facetious, like that. <laughs> it's just never been there. So uh, that's that's a that's a nice little moment. Yeah, I've never been there. I just. I'm trying to think imagine of... trying to troll. Imagine being so bad at this that you decide to troll on YouTube comments in 2019, and you decide we're the people to troll, and you still fail that badly at it. That's well, the yeah. Know. Here's what I think happened too, because he, first off, this guy obviously was too stupid or just too inattentive to realize that uh, it was a podcast that was covering two movies and. He must have just like fast forwarded, you know, like did like the thirty second fast forward every once in a while. Sure, yeah. So he probably heard like, oh, this actress was bad, and assumed we were talking about Tamara Dobson, which we both lauded as being really good in the movie. And we talked about how good TNT Jackson was and how it made money. He probably fast forwarded a little, little bit uh, more, and how we were like, okay, yeah, so it made this much on rentals, it made this, so you know, it made its money here. And then he skipped ahead and missed a couple more parts, and then he got to TNT Jackson. Where we fucking trashed a bunch of shit in that film, but still said we kind because of enjoyed it. Was it was kind of bad, yeah. even though it was kind of enjoyable. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, I love that we've spent more time analyzing this guy's comments than he has spent thinking about yeah. anything in his life. I mean, we, we've yeah. all we've all watched uh, films that are good and bad in different ways. Imagine this, though. This guy analyzing Daniel's comment, who is super intelligent, analyzing Lee's comment, which is super intelligent. And analyzing my comment, which is usually pretty stupid, and still being wrong. How bad does he feel then? <laughs> well, hopefully he'll follow up, but I don't think he will. I replied to him days ago, and he never got back to me. Yeah. Strange how that works on YouTube, you know. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, there we go. There's our comments. And so we're going to go to a break. We're going to play some excellent music from this excellent movie and uh, some podcast promos. i got to say right off, uh, just spoilers. The only thing about this movie that actually pisses me off is that I can't get a proper version of Billy Surrenders, which is the la 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 that plays in like two parts of this film. Yeah, I noticed that too. I tried to get some and I couldn't get it either. Yeah, so I have to like basically get a little segment from YouTube and shove that in there and then shove some more music in. And that's what we have to work with, I guess. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension of not only a film and sound, but mind. A journey into an auditory movie review adventure that must be experienced to be believed. There's a signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Doomsday Clock. You can extract the Witch vs. the Doomsday Clock podcast by either searching for WYCH on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, tune in, and on your Android device. Which versus the Doomsday Clock is a proud member of Legion Podcasts. So prepare yourself. The podcast ice is gonna break. Bad movies. 
world is full of them. From low-budget crap fests to downright unwatchable. And only two men are willing to watch them all. So climb in and take your seat. This is Short Bus Cinema. Let's do it. Hey everyone, this is Johnny Krug from Kruger Nation. And this is Rick Morgan from the Helming Power Hour. We have decided to team up and take you where no one has gone before. We're on a quest to find the world's worst movie, and we're doing it on the bus. Driving through cult classics in every genre to find the holy grail of bad movies. So if you're looking for something different and more fun than you can stand, then climb on in. Short Bus Cinema is a proud member of Legion Podcasts. That's right, yo! Short Bus Cinema. We love to watch the movies you hate. Oh 
Mama put my guns in the ground I can't shoot them anymore That long black cloud is coming down I feel I'm knocking on heaven's door All right, we're back. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid from 1973. William H. Bonney. He killed 21 men. I don't want to kill you, Bill. No, I sure hope you don't, Billy. And he was just a kid. Billy the Kid. You take this. My luck's running good. Patrick F. Garrett. He was the most dangerous outlaw in the territory. So they made him sheriff. It's pretty fair shooting for an old married man. Just lucky, I guess. How he Pat killed. Garrett had just one friend. Hey, Billy. Billy the Kid. And just one job. Kill him. Now Sam Peckinpah, the director who unleashed the Wild Bunch, takes a hard new look at two old friends, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. They were legends in their own time. Times have changed. Times, maybe. Not me. Get to it. One, two, three, four, five, six. I hope he gets away. Well, he won't. It's going to be a loose rope and a long drop. Well, I aim to bring the kid in. And I'm aiming to please him. He'll track you down, Billy. And get you. You know, this ain't no time of year to go looking for somebody. I don't know where he went. You gotta do better than that, Ruthie. I got to the point where I don't do nothing for nobody unless there's a piece of gold attached to it. Where is he? Fort Sumner! Fort Sumner. Where are we going, anyway? Fort Sumner. James Coburn. Bill! Chris Christopherson. Come on in, Pat! Jason Robards. Slim Pickens. Patty Corrado, Jack Elam. That'd be me, sure. Rita Coolidge, Chill Wills. Yeah. And introducing in his first dramatic motion picture performance, <clears throat> Plums. Recording star Bob Dylan. They say that Pat Garrett got your number. Bonnie's 
Sheriff Pat Garrett. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, legends in their own time. But time was running out. Directed by Sam Peckinpah, written by Rudy Wolitzer, starring James Coburn as Sheriff Pat Garrett, Chris Christofferson as Billy the Kid, R.G. Armstrong as Deputy Sheriff Bob Olinger, Matt Clark as Deputy Sheriff J.W. Bell, Jason Robards as Governor Lou Wallace, who I believe wrote Ben-Hur, like, historically like he's the guy he's the guy who wrote ben her the story at least i think uh i think i saw that somewhere bob dylan as alias jack elam who we remember from once upon a time in the west is one of the uh three thugs the one with the fly on his face as alamosa bill kermit rita coolidge as maria who is uh the wife of chris christopherson at this well maybe not quite at this point i think still girlfriend but she's in this briefly anyway emilio fernandez as paco Slim Pickens as Sheriff Colin Baker. Katie Giraldo, one of our podcast girlfriends, as uh, Mrs. Baker. Uh, She's in this very briefly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Elijah Cook Jr. as Cody. Harry Dean Stanton as Luke. LQ Jones as Black Harris. Sam Peckinpah in a brief cameo as Will. And Bruce Stern as a deputy sheriff somewhere. Both are uncredited, and I could not find Bruce Stern anywhere. I did find Sam Peckinpah, but basically anyone who has ever been in a western ever. Is yeah, it's yeah. It, and it's also like uh, all of Sam Peckinpah's favorite people to work with. It's like yeah. I'm putting y'all in my movie, motherfuckers. That's what I'm doing. If so, only Warren Oates had been in this. Yeah, if only he had a severed head sitting in stagecoach that would yeah war notes would is is actually kind of the only missing link in this i think um i think harry dean stanton was the one that surprised me the most like oh look at that yeah he just popped up you know? i literally i literally had to google like is that is that harry dean stanton is that yeah mm-hmm. no, it totally it was awesome so we got a synopsis here from ed sutton on imdb it's 1881 in new mexico and the times they are changing pat garrett oh Bob Dylan joke there. Well done. Um, Pat Garrett, erstwhile traveling companion of the outlaw Billy the Kid, has become a sheriff tasked by cattle interests with ridding the territory of Billy. After Billy escapes, Pat assembles a posse and chases him through the territory, culminating in a final confrontation at Fort Sumner, but is unaware of the full scope of the cattle interest plans for the New West. And, yeah, that's kind of good. I I think that kind of (laughs) works. All right, just just quick edit. Uh, Paul had to leave unexpectedly, so we're he's, you're not going to hear him from the rest of the podcast. Daniel, what are your uh, sort of general thoughts on this film? Yeah, I uh, really like this one. Um, this is a first time watch for me. I ended up watching the uh, hour fifteen minute version. Mm-hmm. The, I guess that's the what the special edition. Yeah, um, yeah, that's basically a combination of the work print kind of preview version that Peck and Paw gave to the studios and the sort of, I, I think like the TV version more than anything else, <laughs> uh, because there's like, you know, there's, there was added stuff for the TV version and some of that stuff's put back in and scenes are rearranged around and stuff. So, yeah, I think this one would be interesting to kind of sit down and compare all three versions at some point. I think it's a film that might that might actually you know kind of deserve that. Um, interestingly, I was kind of looking at reviews from 1973 from the uh, from the original version, 
are from the theatrical version. And mm-hmm. Basically, everybody thought it was a piece of shit. So, yeah. uh, and this film is definitely not a piece of shit. Um, no. It's quite enjoyable. One thing, uh, I really enjoy uh, Christopherson's performance here. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we're used to, at least I'm used to kind of seeing Christopherson later in his career when he was more the kind of grizzled old guy. Um, you know, we should definitely do Millennium at some point. Uh, oh, yeah. Kind of one of those, like, one of my favorite Christopherson uh, bits, you know. Um, I've mentioned it on this podcast because it was on Netflix for a while. So one of those that I loved as a kid, um, you know, just seeing Christopherson makes me want to rewatch Millennium uh, all the time. But, uh you know, I'm kind of used to him being more kind of that kind of character. Yeah. Seeing him here, I mean, he's got this like effortless charm. He's got this kind of ability to uh, to kind of walk into a room and kind of dowsy. He's got a little bit of that kind of rock star quality. He's got a really nice ass. Um, <laughs> so, uh, he, he sticks his, his dick in a, in a girl uh, after kicking Harry Dean Stanton out of bed. Yeah. Um, always, always a, a good thing for a man to do in a movie. Uh, you know, Harry Dean Stanton looking dejected as as you do when you realize mm-hmm. that you know you're not going to get to snuggle with the uh, Mexican prostitute. I mean, anymore. he got but, he yeah. got to have her first, so it's not a big uh, you deal. Know, you know, it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's uh, whatever whatever works for whatever hey, works, what whatever social dynamics are at play. Yeah, you know, Billy, you want my sloppy seconds going? What I'm saying yeah, is, yeah. Harry Dean Stanton is a cuck to <laughs> and not in, in real life i think that was something that was actually happening i think this is you know anyway you know, <laughs> we're completely off the topic here um like the film uh, i think uh you know it's it's it was kind of weird looking at christopherson's performance i was kind of thinking like he reminded me a little bit of like a ryan reynolds kind of kind of character today yeah where he's got that kind of again just that kind of easy charm you, you can tell like this guy's got a magnetic personality and he really you know he doesn't overplay it in the film but i think you sort of get that kind of vision of what you get this vision of youth you know billy the kid has always kind of been a a figure in film that exists as a sort of representation of whatever uh, youth culture kind of is at this point it's almost always like this sort of anxiety of the kind of elder generation to the youth you know and so in the Mm -hmm. 50s you get versions of the mythos where billy the kid is kind of like a a teenage delinquent kind of character and you know he's going to be put in this place by the elders here uh you get a little bit more of you know the kind of moral ambiguity kind of kind of quality i mean this mm-hmm. is kind of post summer of love this is the 70s when that when the kind of the shine has kind of fallen on the sexual revolution a little bit and a little bit of that kind of 70s malaise and um obviously peck and is not going to be as uh, morally absolutist as somebody in the 50s is going to be right and so uh, you do get this this kind of really kind of complex nuanced portrait of these of these characters i mean obviously this isn't really a a portrait of real history. I mean, I, I did start, I don't really know the Billy the Kid mythos all that well. I mean, it's kind of, well, most of what I know about Billy the Kid is what I learned from uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, <laughs> and so I know that there's an outhouse and a phone booth and uh, he uh, gets to meet Socrates. And, uh, you know, yeah. that's that's kind of the, the beginning and end of my knowledge of Billy the Kid to a certain <laughs> degree. But, uh, yeah, um, you know, uh, some people, all they know is like Billy the Kid meets Frankenstein's daughter, or wherever the fuck that movie is, <laughs> or maybe yeah. that's Jesse James. Maybe it's Billy the Kid versus Dracula. I can't remember which one it is. I mean, it reminded me a little bit of um, uh, the assassination of uh, Jesse James by uh, mm, the Robert the, Ford. The coward Robert, Robert Ford. It yeah. reminds me a little bit of that film. I think that um, the director there was was kind of was kind of uh, playing on some of the same themes. Right. Interestingly, what's sorry, I'm I'm reaching for something here, and I'm and I'm. The idea that this sort of mythos is kind of it kind of transcends the actual like people involved, and that yeah. it did even at the time that you know the real life Pat Garrett wrote it's kind of an autobiography or 
sorry, not an autobiography, but a biography of Billy the Kid. Uh-huh. And this becomes kind of the definitive story of Billy the Kid until yep. like historians looked into it and went, well, yeah, this is kind of bullshit, you know? Yeah. And so the idea that the, like, these characters were, were sort of larger than life, that they were these folk heroes in their own time. And uh, that what we're seeing is sort of like this, this sort of self-reflexive, almost meta commentary on, on themselves, that they're, that they're living their lives on this stage to a certain degree. And I think that that's something that, again, Assassination of James plays with explicitly, mm-hmm. but this is kind of doing a little bit more implicitly in the in the sense that it is kind of revising this idea of the Western and the idea of what the Western can be, and through this sort of like through a lens of darkly of these of these characters. So I found myself kind of like not necessarily following the story of the film as much right. as I was following the mood and kind of the ideas that it's playing with. And I feel a little bit guilty that I don't like remember more of what actually <laughs> happened in the film. But it definitely sets its tone and it definitely kind of does the thing it's trying to do if the thing it's trying to do is to sort of redefine the Western right at the moment when the Western was basically dying as a commercial medium. So, yeah, yeah, those that's my those are my thoughts about uh, about the film. Yeah. Deeply metatextual and Chris Christopherson's ass. Those two things. (laughs) Yeah, no. So this is Peck and Paw sort of picking up his revisionist Western thing that he kind of was doing, but wasn't really doing because he wasn't doing Westerns for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not, you know, it's not since the Wild Bunch. Um, Which is only like four years earlier, right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. (laughs) but I mean, he made a lot of movies in a short period of time. Right, right. I mean, it is just sort of like, I mean, we we do kind of think like, oh, yeah, it's only four years, you know, like, oh, he doesn't make Westerns. He made one like four years, like, uh, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I, I get it, you know, but it is it is just sort of like a, that weird, you know, lots of filmmakers today, especially like kind of quote unquote serious filmmakers, you know, wouldn't even make a film for four years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, Peck and Peckinpah was a was both an, an auteur and a, and a commercial director at the same time. He was constantly working. Right. Here's here's the point where he was deep into alcoholism. So. The studios were not happy with him. He was not happy with the studios. They fucked with him in this film. He fucked with them. (laughs) Uh, Sort of mutual antagonism going on throughout the entire shoot. I love this film a lot. I've seen all the versions of it that I'm aware of. I I will say uh, definitively, I think the Turner version is is the one to go with. That's basically the Sam uh, Peckinpah preview version that he gave to the studio before they chopped it all to hell, where they chopped it down Mm -hmm. to like 106 minutes, where... Uh, oh my God, that version of the film makes no sense at all. Like it's just, it keeps most of the violence and just none of it makes sense. It doesn't really tie together. The Turner version is very long. It does go on. It, it's in love with itself. It's, it's you know, it's uh, Sam Peckinpah, like here's all my favorite Western actors. I'm just going to let them play. I'm going to let them have fun and do shit. So, I mean, if but you're- But there's up- a pleasure to that. There's a pleasure to yeah. that in and of itself. But I think that's also a pleasure that, kind of relies on you having seen enough of these to sort of like yeah. see the actors and sort of get like Kenny Harado's in this. And it's mm-hmm. like, mother, like my God, she's amazing. She's, yeah. you know, like high noon was 22 years earlier. And this, that's her right there. You know, no longer the ingenue, but now seasoned brilliant actress. Yeah. You know, and there are a whole lot of other, a whole lot of other figures that, that kind of have mm-hmm. similar, you know, Peck and Paw here. He's, he's going for, I would argue a sort of the same thing Leone was going for in Once Upon a Time in the West, where it's much more about the myth than it mm-hmm. is. And, and he's using that to explore the sort of revisionist side of things where this is the death of the old West and the new West is coming in. And this is how all these characters deal with like the change. It's, it's all these gunfighters and criminals and shit who have no place anymore in this world, really. And right. so that, so they're moving on. 
Pat Garrett is portrayed here as an old man, where in reality, if you're going in this looking for a historical recreation, you best just turn yourself around and walk the fuck out of the fucking movie. Because he's he's much more interested in playing with the themes here than anything else. Uh, Billy the Kid, at this point, Chris Christopherson was like 36. Uh, <laughs> Billy the Kid was 21 when he died. Yeah. Uh, Pat Garrett was 31 or something like that at the time when this happened. Uh, so, you know, James Coburn at this point is 46, gray hairs, and he's talking about, I want to live till I'm old and gray. Motherfucker, you're already old and gray in this movie. <laughs> so, you know, there, there, it almost feels like it's a, it's an intentional joke from Peckinpah at this point on, on this. But yeah, he's much more interested in just talking about these people's place in this new world that's that's coming. And there's the overarching story that's never really super touched upon is just sort of hinted at that you know the uh the cattle barons the landowners they basically send garrett after billy the kid because they're all criminals and they just kind of figure oh they'll all kill themselves and sort sort things out kind of thing the character of poe they have him overseeing garrett kind of like he's sort of shadowing him you know make sure garrett gets the job done you know kills billy the kid and you know i almost kind of figure like there might have been some point where he's thinking Poe tries to kill Garrett, you know, like he totally rewrite history at some point, you know, like that kind of thing. But no, this is, this is really good. I, I, again, I think the Turner version is the best version just because I've seen all the other ones and I'm so in love with this movie that I just like seeing all the actors and all the, all the stuff. Although you get a better thing in the, the special edition version, the scene where Garrett comes to the whorehouse and Mm -hmm. looking for Billy's whereabouts. So he goes to Ruthie Lee or whatever her name is, the the, the prostitute that he favors, who he slaps around a little first. Yeah, uh, no, that was a, that was a not uh, not uncomfortable moment. We'll just yeah. say that, you know. Which, which is which is saying something. Sam Peckinpah, noted misogynist, apparently is. I want to take that part out of my movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's not in the that's not in the preview version at all. That it it, it immediately cuts to Garrett going up to his room. And then Ruthie Lee's already there with her top coming off, and then all the other hookers come in. <laughs> That's interesting. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Let's not give Peckham too much credit. He still, like, shot it. You yeah. Know, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I, I love him for shooting it, though, because that uh, Latina woman in the bathtub, it's like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a great. I mean, it, it's an interesting. I mean, it's so complicated when you talk about this stuff because, like, brutalization of women is just such part of this genre. It's just part mm-hmm. of what is going on in cinema at this point. And you know, rape. It's what's for dinner. You know, like, yeah. come on. You know, I, I mean, how often are we? How often do we just kind of run across that in these films? And I mean, you know, this isn't that brutal. It's basically he, he slaps her around, and she even makes him like hit me again, like. I yeah, owe him that it, much, it, it, and it's like there. She does get like that moment of character or whatever, and there is sort of. But but then just kind of turns into, you know, oh, big snuggle session. You know, mm-hmm. like four prostitutes. We're all just gonna like hang around, and you know, like four women are gonna wash Pat Garrett's dick and balls. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was very much the royal penis is clean kind of moment. You know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, it does. I mean, you've, you've compared this to Once Upon a Time in the West a couple of times. And I mean, you know, there's that. I would compare that to that truly astonishing sequence in Once Upon a Time in the West where uh, Claudia Cardinal is lying in bed with Henry Fauna. And it's kind of shot and edited and, you know, like scored a little bit like a love scene. Yeah. But it's very much a rape scene. And the film knows it's a rape scene. And yet it's sort of like it's it's designed to sort of demonstrate sort of sort of the, the strength that she's showing in this moment and like how and here you get something that's much more kind of like timed to be like fun kind of goofy western action sexy stuff that's going on in the movie and yet it's you know on the face of it much less interested in sort of the the characterization and it's it's much more sort of like you know to use the sjw you know problematic it's much more that right. you know in this film another you know you again just talking about once upon a time in the west i feel like the you know, I'd push back slightly on sort of the, the direct comparison there because I think that in Once Upon a Time in the West, the coming of the railroad, while, while it means the end of this kind of gunslinger world, is also sort of portrayed as something It's like, I mean, you know, one of the, I mean, the, the ending track of the film is Jill's America. Mm-hmm. And that's a, you know, that, that that is seen as sort of the quote-unquote civilizing of the West is seen as like something of a progressive move. That, that, that like kind of evil, like, you know, <laughs> locomotive interest and banking interest are ultimately funding this. But then it also brings a, a certain, um, you know, stability and then it brings a certain ability of, of people who are not violent gunslingers to to live in this world. Oh, there's no hope in the, in this film. There's there's really no hope. Sam Peckinpah obviously like prefers the, the more lawless West. Like right, right. I mean, he romanticizes you know, it, right? Definitely, definitely. I mean, he he romanticizes it even while he's he's critiquing mm-hmm. kind of the the prior cinematic adaptations of it. And I think it's interesting that you know uh, you know the the old West only lasted for about thirty years, basically like eighteen sixty six to you know. 1900 or so is basically when the old west was a thing and then once yeah. the once the sort of the west was settled by um, by the railroads and once you sort of had you know some kind of kind of ongoing commerce you know all that kind of ended that that lifestyle ended despite the fact that people even now kind of larp as cowboys you know <laughs> out there and oh we're ranchers and we got our cowboy hats and we got our you know spurs and it becomes part of the american mythos and that kind of lasts up until world war ii in which case then you know, the, the kind of American GI and kind of the military industrial complex kind of becomes the American mythos. And, you know, yeah. and that kind of, kind of goes from there, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it, sorry, again, I'm kind of talking around this film. I'm kind of, you know, I, I think, I think there's a lot going on here. It's playing with some interesting imagery and it, and it's kind of inspiring some, some ideas about sort of, sort of what the Western means. And I think that it's, it's this, really interesting meta commentary on the western despite and a lot of fun in terms of just kind of you know getting to see all these actors and everything despite like i don't really want to talk about anything that actually happens in the film necessarily <laughs> you know like it's it's weird like that that it's both like i really enjoy it and i really like the performances i like the actors i like you know, it shot well and, you know, all those kinds of things. And yet the actual incidents that happen kind of matter less than sort of the, the general mood that it's trying to, that it's trying to evoke. And I think that that's, I think that that really strikes me, at least on kind of a first feeling is a real strength of the film is that I don't care about what happened in the movie. You know, there's very few scenes really kind of stand out as, is like worth talking about well, to yeah, me right now. You know, lot, it's really more lot, about the broad sweep. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, it's, it's probably one of the longest movies where nothing really happens. Like everyone's kind of in stasis more than anything else. Like it's, it's very much a movie where a lot of people are sitting around a lot and drinking whiskey. And, and, <laughs> I, I do love them drinking that whiskey, man. That's always, that's always <laughs> fun. 
I always love watching these movies with a little bit of whiskey beside me as well, you know, because mm-hmm. it is just kind of like, well, I can't. He can't drink along. Come on. <laughs> I think one of the biggest sort of central things here is basically Garrett is, he looks at Billy the Kid and basically he's chasing himself because this mm-hmm. is what Garrett was when he was younger. And so he's basically tasked with killing himself. And he, he you know, he betrays himself to kill himself kind of idea. Yeah. Because um, he, he takes on this task. And he seems firm in it, but at, at the same time, he, it starts to haunt him a little bit. And everywhere he goes, death kind of follows him, right? Like, it, he, he, he runs into all of Billy's old, old associates, and they were also his old associates, and they all end up dying around him everywhere he goes. Anyone he brings in on in the posse pretty much dies <laughs> I mean, with him. you could you could remake this film as basically like you know this this guy in like a drug gang becomes a narc. Yeah, and he just gets hired, but and then he just goes around like chasing down this one famous drug lord or whatever. Now, I mean, you know the the the, the, the basic themes are. I mean, God, it's it's not it's not that dissimilar to something like Infernal Affairs, which we made as yeah. um, The Departed. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of got similar kinds of ideas at play, although it's, I mean, it's a di- very different film. You mm. know, and, but it's interesting, and here's the thing, here's something you had in your version that you watched that actually doesn't show up in the uh, Turner version. You get to see Pat Garrett briefly in his family life with his wife. Mm-hmm. You don't get that in the uh, preview version. Uh, in the preview version, um, that's it's just, he mentions his wife, but it but that's basically cut out of the film. And there's an interesting contrast where I feel like the real the real Garrett at the point where he's with all the hookers, his soul is already kind of spent, like he's just gone. Yeah. And and his wife is just sad to say it's it's kind of a pretense. The new married life where he's a good man, like it's just it's it's bullshit. It it's it's Clint Eastwood in fucking Unforgiven, where it's like, yeah. oh she she cured me of all my bad ways. No, she didn't. You're you're lying to yourself, kind of thing, yeah. and and he realizes that he's not this guy. I mean, by the time we get to the end of the film, where he finally shoots Billy the Kid, and then immediately looks sees himself in the mirror and shoots the mirror, he, he's essentially killing himself right there. Yeah. Like he realizes what path he took. You know, he basically is a Judas. You took the thirty pieces of silver, uh-huh. you know, and he went after, uh, you know, you went after your own people. And I mean, you know, there is this, you know, we always have this kind of complicated sense of uh, morality around uh, these uh, around portrayals of these kinds of characters you know Robin Hood you know who certainly you know sort of, sort of the sanitizer you know mostly we think of Robin Hood as like a, is either Kevin Costner or uh, a cartoon fox yeah uh, you know but um, you know this kind of sanitized version of you know robbing from the rich to give to the poor you know and hey I'm totally on board with that don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but you know at the same time you know uh, to probably had to uh, kill a few people along the way and we usually <laughs> don't see that that version of that in these films uh, you know you think about you know the, the mythology of Brown Billy the Kid it's really about like kind of Billy the Kid I mean he's just sort of this outlaw in this kind of world in which certainly by the time these stories are being told even in the early 1880s you're seeing you know this kind of industrialization this kind of electrification is happening and you know they're starting to build towns and it's in you're starting to see the the end of this kind of way of life you're starting to see the end of you know this idea that that it's kind of the 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 endless frontier and so much the american psyche is kind of built on this idea of the frontier and so much of what is fucked up about our politics is this idea that like people still think the frontier is there and of course that frontier is built on the genocide of like uh, millions of people etc you know 
um not to bring the, not to bring the podcast down or anything but yeah it's but you know, no it totally um, is and uh you know so so much of our kind of the you know even later on like the kind of gangster pictures and even the action films that you know we kind of enjoy uh, you know and you know are kind of about like bad people doing not obeying the strictures of society and kind of doing things and you know we we kind of like watching that and I mean, yeah. a lot of the pleasure of like zombie films, you know, some like something like Zombieland, for instance, you know, kind of exists in this kind of, well, what if you just, what if you could just run around and like just take steel cars and it didn't matter because everybody was dead, you know, it's sort of the, the, <laughs> the joy of the post-apocalyptic films and a lot of that kind of stuff kind of, kind of exists in that same way. And we have this push pull where we, where we kind of know it's bad, but we kind of want to see it anyway. And yeah. I think that when that starts to influence, you know, culture and when that starts to influence your sort of, vision of what the past is and you know then then it kind of becomes a really deep question of you know kind of our own complicity towards these characters and i think that that's you know that's something the film is definitely kind of reaching for because you know it knows that like neither pat garrett or billy the kid are like good people no it knows that they're both kind of awful in some some very similar ways and some very different ways and yet it knows that we want to sit and watch this because it's a Western and we want to watch it, but it doesn't give us a lot of the kind of traditional um, kind of, kind of cool Western. I mean, there's very little like Western action in this, you know, mm-hmm. what, what is, is mostly uh, really brutal and really kind of get killing people that we, oh, that we kind this... of care about. I mean, the, the death of uh, Slim Pickens, I think. Yeah. Is, like, you know, I mean, Katie, again, Katie Hirado, just the look on her face fucking crying her eyes out i mean just just the just just that performance in that moment kind of sells the like no this isn't fun and games you assholes you know yeah (laughs) no she she knows like from the get-go that's bad and she but she's following her husband because she loves him and she's like all right i'll stand beside you and it still goes bad and and fucking garrett he just walks away from it like he walks away from all this death every time like he he brings death to a scenario and just walks away from it do you get the sense that he's killing billy the kid because he's that he really doesn't like this guy or it's just like he got paid for no it? he like, got paid he, he, here's the thing he's he's struggling with it throughout the entire movie he, he doesn't know why he's doing it i don't think like he, mm-hmm. he he's, he's kind of questing after the answer to that and right. by the end by the end he just realizes that i just fucking killed myself that's all i did like i i I basically just went after myself and there's just probably some deeper read there about his own psyche there's like some suicidal ideation kind of going on there i think he just he he doesn't want to he doesn't want to admit to himself that he's a fucking he's a turncoat and a fraud and he betrayed not only his friends but himself at the same time like he Mm. (laughs) there's probably a much deeper read to go into there but like it's just he looks in that mirror and he's like Jesus Christ he shoots that and I, th- I, I mean, think it's, it's a bit it's a bit of a it's a bit of a like an obvious metaphor an obvious yeah, metaphor but but, it, but it's also like this is at the end of depending on you know nearly two hours worth of film kind of following these guys and yeah you know there's a lot of incidents there's a lot of kind of it's funny like how much stuff is in this film you know like like Billy the Kid he he rescues this guy who's being tortured you know mm-hmm. with a whip you know and it's yeah like awful like you know very bloody sequence and yeah that's just so he almost escapes like that's what actually brings him back to the territory it's like his his old friend gets whipped and beaten or whatever because of his association with billy the kid and so billy stays in the territory and and comes back to fort sumner or whatever and yeah where you get the final confrontation with pat garrett and the the posse and poe who is uh you know shadowing garrett and garrett doesn't like him because 
Poe represents, you know, like the interests of the the cattle barons or whatever and the landowners. It, it's kind of telling that at the end, fucking uh, Poe is too scared to even fucking shoot Billy the Kid. He's got the opportune moment to like kill Billy the Kid and he's just, like, he kind of like begs it off. It's like, oh no, we're here for somebody else or whatever, you know, and Billy the Kid walks back in and then Garrett's there and shoots him. You know, it's, it's kind of telling that uh, Garrett shoots Billy the Kid and there's hardly a wound on him. Like it's just a little, you know, red hole in his chest. Garrett shoots the mirror and it's like cracks like a motherfucker and his image is distorted and stuff. You know, that obvious metaphor comes out and, and, you know, Billy, the kid dies with a smile on his face. Almost like he's, he he sees Pat and he's like, Hey Pat, you know, there's my friend, Pat Garrett. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that like both of these guys, both Pat Garrett and Billy, the kid fought in this thing, the Lincoln County war, which I just kind of was reading about just again, in preparation for this podcast, uh, which yeah, you look into it and it's like there were a bunch of these like little brush fire wars that were happening all around the the kind of the settled United States of you know where territory was kind of being won and lost. I mean, this mm-hmm. is basically just like a bunch of cattle rustlers fighting with <laughs> you know like Well, yeah, no, like and, the, and and I mean, you know, this is this is just kind of this little like little civil war happening that This is the aftermath of that. This is this yeah. is the uh the landowners tying up loose ends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and uh, I mean, you know, in, in, in that sense, I mean, you know, that is itself this sort of, uh, you know, vicious sort of brutal as much as as much as the sort of like the gunslinger way of life is is built on this kind of brutish, violent, you know, like life is cheap kind of kind of mentality. Um, ultimately, it's also kind of built on this sort of at least ideal of freedom. And I think that that tension kind of plays through our, our fascination with the Old West. And again, Peck and Paws, you know. He's romanticizing the gunfighter, the criminal. There's obviously like there's some sort of code of honor there that he's kind of espousing. And these landowners, these cattle barons, they are cheating that they they are you know superseding that and taking it over and they have no honor you know like that's the whole thing like basically pat garrett is a samurai who's you know gone against his master or whatever like yeah, kind of idea you know definitely so, i mean yeah you know this is sort of um one of the one of the kind of groups of people that we we tend to th- kind of think of civil as like empires in terms of our, our vision of history and kind of civilizations and city states etc or we think of like kind of like and this is problematic language, but you know the savages often the you know kind of doing like like farming or whatever. But what we often miss are the the kind of the people kind of in the middle, the the pastoralists who are mm-hmm. um, people who a bit herders who who graze you know cattle on land, and that's and that's exactly who we're talking about. We're talking about this kind of cowboy mythos. We're talking about people who kind of lived this lifestyle and and you know most of the people who lived this were not you know they weren't billy the kid going out and no. doing you know they, they were people you know just trying to kind of eke out a living and again that kind of that that has kind of problematic ramifications in the modern day where ultimately huge amounts of resources get devoted to you know those those handful of ranchers to still live this lifestyle yeah to allow them to live this lifestyle and they then they don't want to pay their fucking taxes because like, <laughs> you know uh yeah complicated feelings about that but uh, you know this does have again it does have political ramifications coming down to this day there is this sort of you know it's an attractive lifestyle it's an attractive kind Mm -hmm. of thing to be and and you know it's not just the sort of exciting gunslinger fighting oh i mean i I bet i I bet a lot of libertarians just love the fuck out of this film like no i'm sure i'm sure yeah yeah well if if you could get them to sit down and like think about it for 10 minutes well yeah that's that's (laughs) the difficult part isn't it yeah (laughs) So Bob Dylan, 
was brought on for the score of this. Peck and Pa did not know who the fuck Bob Dylan was. <laughs> because of course he didn't. No, because he was <laughs> too drunk. Like, basically is what drunk. it is. Uh, but, so, when <laughs> Dylan started playing songs for him, he's like, holy shit, this guy is great. Let's put him in the film. And well, apparently, you got talent, kid, to say to Bob Dylan in 1973. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Weird, huh? Um, but apparently, he had a much bigger part. It basically just got cut out of the script over and over again to the point mm-hmm. where we have him as alias in this. So, what do you think of uh, Dylan in this? I I like him in this. I think he's a he's a he's a fine act. I mean, it's funny how like he's he's there a lot, but he's not doing much so you know mm-hmm. but but he kind of exists almost as the fact that he's also on the soundtrack makes me say he's a little bit of a greek chorus you know he's a little bit yeah. of like the, the observer through which we see this and of course dylan's work is ultimately kind of built on this sort of you know folk kind of folk rock stuff which kind of has its origins with kind of woody Guthrie and kind of talking about yeah. that sort of end of the West kind of, you know, at least that that's kind of more depression era, but it, but it certainly, it plays on those same kinds of ideas of, you know, kind of capital versus labor and this kind of like lost innocence in a way. So um, there is a real kind of thematic resonance there. And I mean, I think the, the score is, the score is pretty brilliant. Um, Bob Dylan, talented guy. turns yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, not one of, not one of his most popular albums though. Like this is one where people like poo poo on it because it's too much of like a jam session kind of thing. Yeah. And I've, I've heard, so, okay, so there there is the Pat Garrett Billy the Kid album that he released, and that's got probably the most streamlined version of his score on that. But then there's about a million outtake albums and bootlegs <laughs> out there. Still, I can't get fucking Billy Surrenders anywhere in a good form on any of these fucking outtake albums, which pisses me off quite a bit. Like, fuck you, Bob Dylan. Like, just fucking release it. It must be there somewhere. Um, Was it not on the CD? It's not on the CD, no. Oh, on the I, vinyl? I, have, I have searched diligently for just a clean version of Billy Surrenders that you hear on the fucking soundtrack of the film. But, I mean, that's kind of what happens with films anyway, where you get a totally different cut of the song than oh, what you yeah, get yeah. Right. Yeah, like I, I can kind of see why people are a little pissed off because it's, it's not an album that's necessarily about anything. Like he never writ a uh, soundtrack before, so he never wrote for a movie. So this is like his first time doing it. So it's just kind of like haphazard in, in a little way. It feels a little bit more like kind of kind of Bob Dylan songs, just kind of stuck in the movie, you know. But, but yeah. Not- but not, I mean, you know, not the bad way, just sort of, you know, oh, it's again kind of speaking to that kind of contemporaneous vision of of, uh, of these characters. And, and and it does sort of, last week I was talking a lot about um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a there's a bit in the screenplay for that where, you know, the uh, the William Goldman says, you know, the, the music that was played at the time was very similar to the music that we're, that's, that's like on the radio now. <laughs> and so, like on the on the um, on the soundtrack for that film, it was like raindrops keep falling on my head, which obviously is not mm-hmm. a song for the 1890s, but it sounds very similar. And again, you kind of imagine that like a something like a Bob Dylan tune, you know, not not as sophisticated without you know electric instruments, et cetera, et cetera, could be played around a campfire by you know some of these characters or whatever, you know. So so there is a again a sort of um, you know even though it's not real it kind of has a sort of an emotional heft and it, it kind of connects the the present and the past in kind of a kind of an interesting complicated way you know yeah and i like dylan in this i mean he does i mean really... i'm not i'm not a huge bob dylan fan to be clear yeah, i mean I don't, you know i never really sit down and go yeah let's 
my problem is that I was like good friends with people who are like obsessive Bob Dylan fans for a few oh, years. Oh God, no! And you know when you run into that, you know you kind of go, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm. Yeah, yeah I, I'm over it. It's like he's got yeah. some good songs, but I mean, come on. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a big major fan of his either, but I, I like him all right in the film. Like, really, he didn't need to be there. He doesn't add anything, but I mean. He does represent kind of like sort of surrogate stand-in for the viewer in a way. Like it kind of makes us complicit in the film, kind of thing. Kind of, yeah, I can see that. A I mean, little I, bit. I think I think he's he's very good at kind of standing there and looking morose. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of. all he smiles, or you know, then he, what do we call you, alias? Well, I guess we'll call you alias then. I kind of right. feel like I kind of feel like Peck and Paw's making another movie inside this movie, <laughs> and it's the movie of like Alias. You know, like I I want now. Here's what I want now. I want the Sergio Corbucci Alias movie now. Mm. You know? So yeah, that'd be like you know this the uh, spinoff from Django would be Alias. You yeah, know, exactly, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I'm I want it to be like like half Django, half Great Silence. And yeah, Bob Dylan in 1973 with a harmonica. That's the... <laughs> I do like that at the end. Uh, there is a bit of a callback to Shane, mm-hmm. but it's but it's turning it on its head. Uh, you see Pat Garrett run uh, sort of go off in the distance. I can't remember actually if this is in the version you have, where you know he's done killing Billy the Kid, and then he he rides off in the distance. And a little kid comes up and, and follows him, starts running after him. But the kid starts throwing rocks at him instead of trying to call him back, which is <laughs> yeah, ni- I think nice. that's in the cut I saw. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, n- nice little uh, turn of uh, turn of the uh, screw there, uh, Peck yeah. and Paw. Um, and also, I just I, I really get a kick out of the uh, crazy religious sheriff that uh, Billy kills early on, <laughs> where you know he's like, "I got sixteen dimes in my shotgun," you know, oh, if you, you want to fuck with me and. Uh, by the way, that's something that would not work. You can't just like shoot a bunch of thin dimes out of a shotgun and expect to kill somebody with it. It just kind of wouldn't do it. Uh, there's there's a reason like shotgun pellets are the size they are because they do. Actually I was do assuming the I was assuming that sixteen dimes was a was like a gag was like a uh, like a reference or a, a sort of like a well, like slang for something. I, I, I don't I, I don't know if it is, but I I do know like the dime and the shotgun thing is kind of like a Western myth kind of oh, idea. Okay. But, but also um, like sixty, you know, a buck sixty is a fair amount of money in yeah. eighteen eighty one. You know, no, but it, I got thirty five bucks right here in my. <laughs> but here's the thing: it, it's total bullshit. But as far as movie making goes, I think it's one of the all time great little setups for a bunch of really cool lines. Because oh, yeah. and also it's a setup for one of the greatest fucking pieces of squib work I've ever seen. Where he shoots them, you see the dimes come out of the shotgun briefly. Because it mm. slows it down, and then you see them tear through the fucking sheriff, and there's this blood everywhere. I mean, you get all these great lines, you know, keep the chains, Bob. And then when a guy comes up and says, I, I gotta take your horse, and you know, uh, pay for it. You just gotta, you know, you gotta dig the money out of his body <laughs> to pay for the horse. <laughs> Come on, like that's great stuff. It it's is so good. It is. Yeah. So. Yeah, Peckinpah's alcoholism was so advanced in this during the making of this that apparently he would, to start a day, he would start with a large tumbler of neat vodkas to stop his shakes. 
That's how bad he was at this point. Yeah, sure. By, by mid-afternoon, he would have moved on to grenadine, you know, to cut it a little bit. And after that, he was too drunk to work. And James Coburn recalled that Peckinpah was only really coherent for about four hours of the day while shooting this thing. And yet it's this good, which, I mean, which, yeah. you know, just, just goes to show you, you kind of think at a certain point that the alcoholism was part of his process, right? Like you've got a. It is. I mean, I mean, uh, the, his, the, his the, movie... the films he made during this period are so specific and so like a thing. Like it would obviously you never want to wish you know a terrible disease like that on anyone. You know, yeah. it's, it's not justifying it by saying like, oh, he made some great movies because who knows, it might have been even better. Maybe maybe <laughs> we, we would have gotten the the real version originally. You know, or you know who knows. I mean, yeah, I mean if. You got to kind of think maybe he wouldn't have died at 59. Maybe he would have gone on for another 20 years making interesting films, you know, like, yeah. you got to think. Um, and I mean, he made Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia right after this. Yeah. When he didn't really have studio interference in that one. And that turned out, well, I mean, I think we have slightly different opinions on that, but I, I think that's his I, best film. I definitely want to revisit that one because I was a little bit, you know, just kind of displeased by it. Upon mm-hmm. on that particular rewatch, but I do really like the film, you know. Um, I do, I mean, honestly, I like this more. I would, I, I would kind of revisit this again more enthusiastically, I guess. Um, yeah, uh, I think there's, a, there's just so much great stuff in this, and I, I just kind of, I don't know, I really like uh, Peck and Pond Western mode, you know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, this uh, might be, this might be my favorite Peck and Paw film so far. Yeah. I don't know, I haven't watched, I haven't rewatched The Wild Bunch in like. 12 years or something so i definitely need to revisit that one well yeah we should get to that at some point but um to to go on to the sort of like production problems with this basically like i was saying peck and pond the studios were at each other's throats like i think even before this food this movie started this film has six editors Mm -hmm. this film has six editors one of which went on to direct a couple of the uh, pierce brosnan bond films yes Yes. Um, but so here's the thing. They didn't give them, they basically just stranded Peckinpah and his crew out in the desert and said, shoot some shit. They didn't give him a mechanic to repair anything if something went wrong. Right. So a bent flange in a lens of one of the Panavision cameras caused all of the shots made with that one camera, all of the master shots, <laughs> to be out of focus on the right side and thus rendering them totally unusable uh, because MGM had refused Sam Peckinpah's request for a camera mechanic to be on duty during the shoot in Durango, all because the footage was first sent back to Los Angeles for processing. The crew didn't discover the problem for several weeks. So he had to come back with a fucking handy cam and reshoot shit. So that's why um, if you watch the Turner version, um, I'll say this, the version you watched is much more cleaned up and, you know, uh, Streamline, like it, it gets rid of a lot of the continuity errors. Um, <laughs> in in the Turner version, there are continuity errors that come out because it was like weeks afterwards that they had to reshoot a good, like I think, third of this fucking film. To I believe so. It. Yeah, so I mean, you you get the like really great Panavision shots, and then you get like these sort of handy cam, steady cam shots or whatever the fuck, you know, kind of thing. I mean, this but, sort of predated steady cam, but yeah, no. I, yeah, I, well, yeah, but you know what I mean? And yeah. so the film went several days over schedule and <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars over budget just because of that. And Which, the is, film, which is literally like the, the, the studio said, yeah, but we're going to save some money and not give you a guide to make sure your cameras are working <laughs> properly. Yeah. You know. 
I'll just briefly mention the different versions of this. So we have the 106-minute theatrical version, which is majorly cut-down version, just rendered the film kind of incoherent. The the video releases restored the 116-minute print known as the Turner Preview version, which contained the violence but lost 16 seconds due to, like, um, shots of cockfighting and... <laughs> Stuff and horses dying. Oh yeah, stuff. they're like they're like like blowing away chickens. The yeah. beginning of the film, it's like yeah, well, their heads. Well, yeah. Let's let's see if there's that that SPCA. Uh, you know, <laughs> no animals were harmed in the making of this film. At the end, of the, I don't think that's a thing. I think mm. they were actually uh, blowing up chickens there. Mm. But yeah, uh, yeah, the Turner preview version is like the 122 minutes, so it's just like you know over two hours, just two minutes yeah. over. And the 2,515 minute restored version, known as the special edition, is an editor's idea of what maybe Peck and Paw wanted, which I kind of call <laughs> bullshit on. Like they even say on the back of the fucking DVD, like this is the intended version of Peck and Paw. It's like no, it's not. This isn't like Orson Welles with you know with fucking, Touch of Evil. Yeah, they, Touch of Evil, know. where he actually had notes detailing everything, right? Yeah. This is just this, this is this is basically an editor kind of going like Peck and Paul was deep in this alcoholism. He didn't really know what was <laughs> yeah. going on half the time. Literally half the time he didn't know what was going on. This is and this so, is him saying like, I could do a better job in Peck and Paul is what he's doing. Yeah. Like yeah. And it's like fuck you, no. I and I think the 115 minute version is good. Like I yeah. would recommend it. For people to watch because it's not vastly different but i mean watch that and you know get into the film and if you really like it watch the turner version and just fucking you know let it sink in kind of thing i'm and, really surprised that they because that that's kind of the one thing that i'm i'm surprised that isn't in that version is the uh prologue and epilogue the yeah the, where where pat garrett gets killed because the fact that that stuff is in the conception of the film kind of indicates that this is kind of about this kind of passing of history it is about this sort of like larger sweep of the old west kind of idea um yeah i mean again connects it right back to you know the assassination of uh, jesse james which i'm now thinking you and i should probably do that film yeah we should point. probably do it yeah 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 but, uh, um so yeah uh budget for this was ended up being 4.64 uh, million and it did go like $1.6 million over budget because of the reshoots. Eventually, it did make $11 million, but at the time, you know, before like real releases on video and stuff like that, it was a commercial failure. So honestly, this kind of marks the sort of downturn in uh, Peckinpah's career for the most yeah. part. Like it was kind of a spiral after this. He did like five more films after this and. I don't know if any of them were commercial successes. I, I can't remember if Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia was or not. Uh, I don't remember. But I would totally believe that, that did not make money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> DVD info. We're going to get a YouTube commenter like complaining. Yeah. We actively claimed Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia made and money. By the yeah. way, Tamara Dobson was a great actress. And yeah, we agree, <laughs> asshole. Or no. No, she'll he'll say uh, Katie Geraldo was uh, was was an excellent actress, and you know you shouldn't shit on her. We didn't, you you, yeah. you stupid prick. Yeah, um, we did nothing uh, of the sort. Go <laughs> uh, listen to our high noon episode. It's one of the ones that I'm most happy with. Actually. Yes, exactly. Yeah, DVD info for this part of the uh, Warner Brothers, uh, and this is what I own: the uh, Sam Peckinpah, the Legendary Westerns Collection. And this has the two DV, the two disc uh, DVD version, special edition. It was also released on its own in that format and on Blu-ray 
which is just a one disc thing. It's got like the two cuts of the film on just one disc because it's Blu-ray. So there you go. So that like, like that's the best way to go with this. I bought the DVD this week uh, specifically so I could watch this and not have to worry about uh, finding some bootleg version or whatever. I bought the uh, the. The, the nice DVD version, not the Blu-ray, just because um, it was a little bit more expensive. And I thought, oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, apparently, for what it's worth, the Amazon video version, as far as uh, what Blu-ray.com tells me, is the is the good version. Like, it, it's it's not some shitty, like, cut from some dodgy piece of shit DVD somewhere. It's, it's, it's actually, I, I think it's, I think it's either the version I watched or it's the, uh, a special edition from 2005. So that's interesting. And oh, I'll say, yeah. no, it was sorry. It was available to rent for like three bucks or $10 to buy. So I was like, was that available? And I just decided in like SD. So I think, yeah, I don't know what version of that that was. Um, uh, I will say this 121 the, minutes. But, oh, okay. So that, yeah, that must be the, that must be the Turner preview yeah, one. It's, it says 121 minutes, but uh, knowing, knowing Amazon and their sort of like, sometimes they are unlikely to actually have the details right on the yeah, screen right. When, you, when you hit play, but uh, uh, know, who knows? But, but uh, I mean, uh, I will say like the, uh, the Turner preview version, as far as I know, has not been really restored. Like it looks fine, mm-hmm. but I mean, if you're used to like crystal clear shit, get the, uh, you know, watch the special edition from 2005 because yeah, they actually clean that up. The, yeah, I mean, the version I watched looked great. I had mm-hmm. I had no issues with it. Um, you know, so I mean, it, it actually did look really really nice on DVD. So, yeah, no, I I I would love. I mean, yeah, <laughs> obviously I haven't seen it, but I would love to see like a really like cleaned up version of that. I mean, and it is again one of those things where I guarantee you, you know, there's some fan who would love to like do that work. To, to make a cleaned up version of this film, mm-hmm. uh, but there's no uh, kind of commercial need for it, and so no. it just doesn't exist. And that's the and that's the the shame of it, you know. But, you know. Yeah, but still, it is what it is. So, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the uh, interwebs. People shouldn't find me on the interwebs. It's, oh, uh, really? Okay. Yeah, no. Uh, no, you can find me on the internet. I'm at uh, at Daniel Lee Harper on Twitter. If you want to come follow me. I mostly tweet about uh, terrible people and the things that they do and say. And the, by terrible people, I mean like genocidal racists. Um, hmm. I do a podcast about those genocidal racists. It's called I Don't Speak German. Uh, it gets many times the audience of this podcast, but this one is way more fun. So you should listen <laughs> to this one first. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, you can find that at uh, I Don't Speak German. com, And I'm sure there's a link somewhere down in the show notes where you can find that. Yeah, or or listen to this afterwards as a palate cleanser after you've learned about Nazis and how terrible they are. Have you learned about like terrible, terrible Nazis? You know, (laughs) after you learned about you know Nazis that shove methamphetamine up their asshole, then you know come back and uh, listen to this. This is way more fun. More Nazis just shove meth into them all the time, (laughs) or less meth depending on which Nazis you're talking. No, they should overdose on meth. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find all of our requisite links, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, all that good stuff. Join the Facebook group, the best way to figure out what's coming up on the podcast. You might even figure it out before we figure it out. Who knows? Yeah, it happens. It happens. If we just take take one of Jeff Williams' recommendations, mm -hmm. that's that's the way to go. What are we doing next week? Um, Soldier Blue. 
Soldier Blue. Blue. Have you hey, missed the source? Duty right here. I'm holding. Oh shit, motherfucker! All right, Soldier Blue next week then. Yeah, next week or episode, whatever, whatever comes first. Whatever comes first, mm-hmm. episode a week. You know, maybe we'll record it tomorrow. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna just we're gonna do a daily podcast from now forward. <laughs> yeah, no, we're no, we're totally not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine trying to do like two hours of this shit a week? A, a oh day? my god. I just, uh, I'd have to be paid for it. That's the yeah, only yeah. way I can do it. Be a full time job at that point. Yeah. You know? yeah, no. So join our Patreon. No, we don't have one yeah. of those. Uh, <laughs> I have one. Believe Daniel me, if you pay one. us enough, if you pay us enough, we will do this as a full time job. Pay Daniel right. thousands of dollars on his Patreon, and then we might consider it. Yeah. Yeah. I would do this full time. If you know, oh, I would totally do this full time if people were paying me. Fuck yeah, I'd be like, fuck my job right now. And we could totally do like three episodes a week. Oh, yeah, we totally could. If I mean, if I had nothing else going on, yep. Mm -hmm. But we're not Mark Barron, we're not Joe Rogan, thankfully. Mark Barron, I said Mark Barron, I didn't say Mark Barron. Okay. Well, I don't know who Mark Barron is. I don't know the fuck <laughs> podcast you listen to. <laughs> what the fuck's going on? <laughs> we've reached the, the we've reached the Lee is getting slightly belligerent portion of the, I am, uh, of the I'm evening. You know, starting yeah. to get a little peeved. Yeah. So yeah, we should probably end it right now. Uh, thank yeah. you everyone for listening. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, it was it's always fun. It's great. I love I love doing this one. This is one of my favorite movies. So it was cool yeah. to finally get to it. That and, was great. Uh, yeah, this is a great conversation. I'm very happy we had this conversation. Yeah. And Paul, we love you. Yes, we do. Uh, and we will be back when we're back. Goodbye.
You have been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.